Ian. Welcome to Creator Coco. This podcast helps you become a better creator by helping you learn from what other creators have already figured out. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us a tweet at Creator Coco. That's Creator and then C-O-C-O-A. In this episode, I talk about what I'm reading, specifically Brave New World, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, The Myth of Race, and How Emotions Are Made. I hope you learn something that helps you become a better creator. Okay, so I'm just going to go through my list of books on Audible. Audible is something I have been recommending to anyone who would listen. <laughs> I think it's an amazing product. It's a bit on the expensive side and it doesn't give you enough for what you pay in terms of like enough books. I'll talk about that later, but um, it's still a very useful service to have. Um, because it gives you access to a lot of good information. It's like paying a subscription to access a library, which is right on your phone. And so Audible is extremely convenient and it's a major key, highly recommended. Um, I've been using Audible for a couple of years. And by the way, it would probably sound like this episode is, is sponsored by Audible or something like that, but that's not the case. I just It's just a product that has really helped me out personally, and uh, I'm just gushing about it because it's, it's related to what I want to talk about. It's part of the story. So yeah, um, I just want to go through the list of books which I have on my Audible, and uh, which I've been using for a couple of years now, and uh, I will highlight some which I think are interesting. I've had a couple of podcasts in the past where I have talked about some books that I'm listening to once in a while, Uh, but uh, this would probably be a podcast where I can put all of them. Let's begin. Um, So I'll just pick a book and and, uh, talk a bit about it and what I thought about it, and maybe I don't completely remember what uh, what I read in the book, but I'll give you my general impressions. And... um, the reason why I want to point out these books is because books can change your life, literally. Um, books are super important, um, especially nonfiction books, probably in the category of self-help. And by self-help, um, I used to think self-help is a scam. Like when you hear self-help, you just think of fake gurus and people who are selling you uh, uh, get-quick-rich scams. But some of the books I'm going to point out here are philosophical or they give you an angle on life and it's like uh, when you read a book it's like you're downloading information or life experience from another person that you had not considered and it's a whole other perspective so it's very very important to 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 read books so okay intro done (laughs) cool 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 uh let's see so the first one i'll talk about is called man's search for meaning Internationally renowned psychiatrist Victor E. Frankl endured years of unspeakable horror in Nazi death camps. During and partly because of his suffering, Dr. Frankl developed a revolutionary approach to psychotherapy known as logotherapy. At the core of his theory is the belief that man's primary motivational force is his search for meaning. Man's search for meaning is more than a story of Victor E. Frankl's triumph. It's a remarkable blend of science in humanism and an introduction to the most significant psychological movement of our day. 
So that's the summary of Man's Search for Meaning. It's the story of someone who um, ended up in the Nazi death camps. So imagine having your freedom taken away from you uh, based on your race or religious beliefs in uh, the Nazi horror land. And he ended up in a death camp where you're pretty much condemned to die. And it's probably the one of the worst situations a human being can and one of the most extreme situations a human being can, can find themselves in. And uh, I found this book when I was kind of trying to get more into stoicism and just trying to understand how, um, how can you use your mind to prepare itself against, um, basically, how can you ensure that you're happy even if you're in conditions which would be considered miserable otherwise? Uh, because a lot of the things which make us happy or sad are completely made up in our mind. And the goal of stoicism basically, okay, let me not, um, I know this is a controversial topic or a topic which has people who are passionate about it. So let me look up stoicism so I can have the stoicism meaning. Let me look it up. So stoicism is the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. So it's just being a chill ass individual who... <laughs> Like whether things go up or down, um, you just go through life and uh, you just want to, you know, observe, be chill. If something happens, it happens. Uh, you prepare yourself as much as you can. Um, there was one example, uh, probably in another book, which was that um, imagine if you completely lost everything, like, um, and you can take it as far as you want. Uh, you can consider everything, all the money and the physical positions, positions you have. You can consider uh, your loved ones. You can also consider it yourself. Like imagine if you yourself died. Imagine if the people around you died. Imagine if you lost all your money. Imagine if you, if all the things which you are afraid of happening ended up happening. Um, would that really be the end of life? You know, um, as long as you're in good physical condition and even like a good mental state, you can always come up come come off it in a in a cool and chill way without the display of feelings and without complaint like you're like oh fine i just lost all my money uh let's move on <laughs> what what can i do next like you don't take things so emotionally and uh, as much as that sounds like uh being hard on yourself and not letting yourself be, be a human being or something like that uh to me it's also a form of optimism uh because you are not being pessimistic like if bad things happen you're still like oh uh bad things happen that like <laughs> there's no big deal or good things happen it's not it's not a big deal as well so man search for meaning he found himself in that situation where you are pretty much condemned to die and in the worst possible situation and uh he ended up um i think he ended up writing a book maybe during that time and you end up seeing all these people dying around you and he ended up creating something called logotherapy which was like a form of therapy which i think was based on uh i don't know search for meaning that's what he says but i don't really remember a lot of the details but it's a very good book and and that's the other thing about books you forget them so it's important to go back and read them and this is probably probably one i would recommend and uh i would probably go back to as well okay so the next one is called brave new world here's the summary when lenina and bernard visit a savage reservation we experience how utopia can destroy humanity 
On the 75th anniversary of its publication, this outstanding work of literature is more crucial and relevant today than ever before. Cloning, feel-good drugs, anti-aging programs, and total social control through politics, programming, and media has Adlos Huxley accurately predicted our future. With a storyteller's genius, he weaves these ethical controversies in a compelling narrative that dawns in the year 632 AF after Ford, the deity. When Lenina and Barnard visit a savage reservation, we experience how utopia can destroy humanity. Okay, that's the book. Uh, it's called A Brave New World, and uh, it's famous. It's a famous book. I'm sure some of you have probably heard about it. And uh, it's a famous story um, about... Uh, it's kind of retro-futuristic because it's like someone in the past trying to imagine how the future is going to be. And in this case, the author here, and his name is... Let me play this. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley, yeah. So Aldous Huxley, like he hit it right on the nail. And uh, I think some of the best sci-fi is the sci-fi that ends up being accurate in some way or um, covering an aspect of the future. I think the, the sci-fi movies that end up living on are the sci-fi movies that probably end up um, inspiring technology, inspiring scientists, inspiring people to end up and they end up creating that or they end up predicting the state of the future in a very clairvoyant way like yeah so so let's talk about uh this cloning um in this future everyone is cloned and uh i there's usually like before you've read them maybe you you you're thinking what's the difference between a brave new world and also 1984 and the difference is in a brave new world everyone is happy but in 1984, everyone is miserable. <laughs> that's the that's the answer. So, um, a, a brave new world is a utopia, and 1984 is a dystopia. So, yeah, that's the difference. So, um, and this is a utopia where everyone is cloned. So everyone is born, um, like by being made in a factory, kind of. And then there's different classes of people. And then it's a story of someone who I think, um, like one of the people who I think he was, he was created by uh, his mom and uh, ooh, what was this book about? <laughs> uh, cloning feel good drugs, anti aging programs. Uh, and uh, they, I remember. Okay, something I remember is they also had this drug called soma, and. Um, and which reminds me of social media. That's the other uh, thing which I uh, connected uh, with uh, a brave new world. So they have this drug where, which when you take it, it gives you, I think, pleasure, or it takes you to like a dream world, and you enjoy, and you 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 like basically anytime you're miserable, anytime you want to do anything, you just take this drug, and then you're completely happy and you're uh, you're pacified for that moment. And people are addicted to this drug, and they take it all the time. And that's kind of what is happening now with social media. And uh, what else? Then there was something about his mom and some other stuff. But it's a very good book if you want to just uh, get a, like, it's like um, stepping back from our own society and looking at another society and then seeing the parallels and then being like, oh, hmm, that uh, what's happening to them? It's when I read it, it sounds horrible, but 
now let me apply that to my life and realize some of the horrible things that are happening to me that I wasn't noticing before. So, so that's that. How a utopia can destroy humanity. That being said, we um, let me look for the next one. The next one is called, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Here's the summary. With his characteristic eyebrow-raising behavior, Richard P. Feynman once provoked the wife of a Princeton dean to remark, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, but the many scientific and personal achievements of this Nobel Prize-winning physicist are no laughing matter. In addition to solving the mystery of liquid helium, Feynman has been commissioned to paint a naked female Troyador and asked to crack the uncrackable safes guarding the atomic bomb's most critical secrets. He has traded ideas with Einstein and Bohr, discussed gambling odds with Nick the Greek, and accompanied a ballet on the bongo drums. Here, woven with his scintillating views on modern science, Feynman relates the defining moments of his accomplished life. This book was a joy to read. It was like kind of a weird adventure uh, with a famous physicist. So uh, Richard P. Feynman, let me, um, Richard P. Feynman, let me read what he's about here on the wiki. So Richard, he's an American theoretical physicist known for his work in the path integration formulation of quantum mechanics, the theory of quantum electrodynamics, the physics of superfluidity of the superfluid, as well as his work in the particle physics for which he proposed the parton model. He's basically a huge deal in the scientific community and he has made huge contributions and he's won, um, I guess, a Nobel Prize or two. I don't know how many he's won, but uh, he's basically a big deal. <laughs> And uh, he's very inspiring, um, and I am I am inspired by scientists uh, very very much. Ever since I was a child, I've always looked up to scientists because they are at the top of the food chain when it comes to advancing humanity. Uh, everything we experience right now, uh, like this podcast, laptops, clothes, water systems, and basically, um, I don't know everything. Basically, modern housing, plumbing. Uh, food delivery, even making food, um, medicine, all that stuff is because of scientists. And I admire scientists very, very much. And I've, uh, I've always wanted to learn more about scientists. And so, yeah, I decided, I decided to pick up this book. And uh, it's an awesome adventure. It's not a, it's not, okay, it is scientific because it's about a scientist. So there are some scientific concepts, but you don't really need to be a scientist or anything to understand what he's talking about. And I found it actually pretty candid because he ends up talking a, a lot about stuff you didn't expect him to talk about. He talks about the women he was, you know, <laughs> uh, messing around with. Uh, he talks about uh, when he was a kid, he talks about like breaking rules and you can see he's just like a curious guy. He reminds me of um, of Rick from Rick and Morty. <laughs> Actually, yeah, uh, reading that book is just basically the story of uh, Rick. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's a fun book. Um, surely you're joking. Mr. Feynman, that's the name of that one. Uh, the other one I would like to highlight here is is one called the myth of race so um when you are curious about things or when you want to learn about things it's um one of the first things 
one of the best things you can do to get more knowledge about that topic is to read books which uh, reflect that topic. I happen to be black, and so uh, race is something that, through the media, I know, like, like I have a, I feel like uh, by default, human beings are not created to think about race and racial stuff. I feel like uh, it's a structure that has been imposed on us as a society, and it keeps being hammered into our heads every time you watch media. Uh, it just stands out so much. So we it just it just ends up being something that we're talking about. But I don't believe there's any biological reason that we talk about race. I just think it's a tool that's being used by people to hold on to power. And so that comes with misinformation. And uh, when you start waking up um, and you start realizing how much misinformation there is in this universe, in this world, um, um, I basically ended up landing on... Uh, I want to also learn more about race. What are the misconceptions I have about race? And um, yeah, let me read this. Here's the summary. The myth of race deals concisely with a wide range of topics from how the concept of race differs in different cultures and race relations in the United States to IQ tests in the census. It draws on scientific knowledge to topple a series of myths that pass as facts, correct, false assumptions, and clarify cultural misunderstandings about the highly charged topic of race. The book demonstrates that the apparently straightforward concept of race is actually a confused mixture of two different concepts. And the confusion often leads to miscommunication. The first concept, biological race, simply doesn't exist in the human species. Instead, what exists is a gradual variation of what in what people look like, e.g. skin color, facial features and in their genes as you travel around the planet with more distant populations appearing more different than the closer ones. If you travel in different directions, the populations look different in different ways. The second concept, social race, is a set of cultural categories for labeling people based on how their ancestors were classified, selected aspects of what they looked like, or various combinations of both. These sets of categories vary widely from one culture to another. Praise for the myth of do, 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 do. okay, fine, but that's 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 what the book is about, and um, biological race simply doesn't exist. So, everything that we're talking about when you talk about black, when you talk about white, when you talk about brown, when you talk about skin color, it's all a made up discussion, literally. Um, it's it's completely made up, and uh. And uh, like it's made up in terms of like in in reality, race doesn't exist. Black people don't exist. White people don't exist. Those are labels that people are putting onto each other. And is it not strange that um, that uh, even a, a person who is who appears white, like on their skin, but they have a a, a black ancestor, that they would consider themselves black. Like, um, so the whole situation of being black, being white, um, being this or being that, is a made-up discussion, and it fills a lot of people's um, maybe it fills a lot of people's consciousness and a lot of their time thinking about this thing, thinking am I am I am I black? Am I am I this? Am I that? When it doesn't really matter, um, and uh, 
I'm not specifically talking about social economic conditions. So maybe some people are like if you if some people are being discriminated against, that's one thing. But I'm talking about now the concept behind that discrimination. It's fake. Um, and people should not believe that they are that the a, a brown person is different from a white person or a white person is different from a from a, this other colored person. They're all people. Um, yeah. And the, uh, the reason why it's important to teach this lesson to people is because this can severely affect people's confidence growing up. If you're growing up and you're not seeing people who look like you succeeding and you don't have other examples, we are human beings. We learn from examples. Um, and and uh, basically only see shitty examples of people who look like you. Um, that uh, that can affect how you um, you proceed in life. This is something a lot of black people, including myself, have to deal with. And you have to figure out that it's all bullshit and you just need to live your life and do whatever you can in the climate that we're in in order to succeed. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a very important book, and uh, you, you uh, with this book you end up realizing that the idea of black and white is mostly an American issue that they have exported to the rest of the world. Um, in in other countries like Brazil, they have different categories for different different shades of people. They have more different kinds of uh, they have more words for describing people with different shades from the very white to the very dark, and everything in between. And so this idea of black versus white, and even someone who considers themselves um, white uh, in uh, in Brazil or in South America can go to the U.S. and now all of a sudden everyone is calling them black. So uh, it's an it's mostly an American idea, and it's important for you to realize that so that you don't get carried away by all the bullshit that you find online that has to do with black versus white. It's mostly American, and they have their own very interesting history. Um, uh, to do with the, 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 the I don't know, the, the race relations, pretty much. But um, yeah, race is made up. Don't think about it. Focus on creating value for people. And um, and uh, don't get carried away by the people who are, who still don't know that it's all made up. Another thing I was interested in learning more about is emotions. So uh, this is after I read the book by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, called uh, the power of now, which is basically the idea that uh, in our minds we constantly have a voice going on inside our heads, and if you if you never if no one tells you, <laughs> if no one tells you, or if you don't figure it out for yourself somehow, that's how you're going to end up living for the rest of your life. I think like if no one tells you this idea, it's possible that you'll just live in your head and. And uh, you live with a voice inside your head and you, you think that that voice is who you are. But in reality, you're something, um, you're something a bit deeper than that, than that voice. That voice is just a noise. So the, there's a voice in your head always telling you stuff, giving you anxiety, like you're always thinking. You're always thinking um, about stuff, you know, thinking you're anxious or you're thinking about the future, you're thinking about the past. And what the power of now basically tells you that is that um, that that thinking and that voice is not who you are, and it's also possible for you to, for you to now start thinking about your thinking, because you start observing how you're thinking instead of being carried away by the thoughts. You are now observing the thoughts and you are taking note of them and you are 
uh, now analyzing the patterns of the thoughts that come in, and now it's much easier for you to be stoic, for you to navigate life, for you to not overreact, because you're not carried away by the emotions. And um, it's easier said than done because you end up still experiencing emotions, but now you are aware that you're experiencing emotions. There's a huge difference there. You become aware that you are now in the <laughs> in the other dimension <laughs> where you are now observing like you're feeling the feelings inside you like um oh now i feel jealousy or i feel embarrassment or i feel you know i feel awkward um um and so now you now i ask myself now what are these emotions what are, what did we mean when we say emotions and um this is a very valuable book called um how emotions are made now, let me read you the summary. The science of emotion is in the midst of a revolution on par with the discovery of relativity in physics and natural selection in biology. Leading the charge is psychologist and neuro neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, whose research overturns the long-standing belief that emotions are automatic, universal, and hardwired in different brain regions. Instead, Barrett shows we construct each sentence, each instance of emotion through a unique interplay of brain, body, and culture. A lucid report from cutting, the cutting edge of emotion science, how emotions are made, reveals the profound real-world consequences of this breakthrough for everything from neuroscience and medicine to the legal system and even national security, laying the bare immense implications of our latest and most, laying bare the immense and the immense implications were most of our latest and most intimate scientific revolution. Cool, I got through that. The biggest idea I got from this book, and here is here's another misconception that we have about ourselves. And uh, I guess this podcast is just a it's just me going. It's just a story of me going through a lot of assumptions, which uh, a lot of huge foundational assumptions, which are imposed on us as human beings by other human beings when we are born into the earth. Like we, we are born into a system that other human beings have created. And this is just a journey of me trying to break those, um, break away those chains that other people are using to control you. And here, uh, one of those chains is the idea of emotions. Like since we grew up, since we, since we grew up um, as a child, you're told that there are emotions, you're either happy or sad, or you either feel this or you either feel that. Um, <laughs> like I feel anxious. I feel um, I feel like I I used emotions basically to uh, a bit earlier to talk about um, to try and express how I was feeling. But when I was saying embarrassment, or when I was saying, let's say you're in love, or let's say you hate someone, is this the hate I feel the same hate the other person's feel? Is the love I feel the same love the other person is talking about? Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, am I either happy or am I sad or am I this or am I that? And the truth is that there's no there's no there's no brain state that is called love. There's no brain state that is called happy. There's no brain state that is called sad. Maybe there are some psychological or physio physiological you know symptoms that can that can give someone an idea for how you're feeling. But the truth is. Our feelings are completely messed up and all over the place and uh, they go up and down and they're all involved in different contexts with different things. 
And the other interesting thing is emotions, at least some of the ones we experience, uh, we call, we say we experience are cultural. Different community, different uh, cultures uh, have different ideas of emotions. So that means, uh, okay, I, I don't know the specifics, but different cultures don't, don't um, like the, Japan has different words for emotions that English people have never hear, I've never heard about um, even like the Swiss and the English and probably even Americans have different words for emotions that, uh, that, uh, that uh, and you can't find in other cultures. Like I know Japan is famous and also uh, I think Schrodenfraude or other words like that, or even friend, fr French, they probably have words for other emotions, different languages, for emotions that are not found in other languages. And that's interesting, right? So who gets to name these emotions and who says that what's an emotion and what's not? And the truth is that it's made up. <laughs> That's another thing that society has made up. You're not happy or sad. Um, you, I mean, there are feelings and you can generalize them in some way, but it's much more nuanced like that. And one idea that I got from here was called emo having emotional granularity. That means when you start observing yourself, you can start finding words to describe emotions for yourself. You don't rely on other, okay, you can, you can definitely, uh, it's important to experience other cultures as well and find other words and other emotions that you didn't think about. Oh, this is an emotion. This is something someone can feel. Um, that's important as well. So you go out and you start learning about other different types of emotions in other cultures as well. That's one thing. But then you also start observing yourself and you start realizing, oh, I'm having this feeling and this is a recurring feeling. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I know in general it's called anxiety, but it's anxiety after maybe uh, because of this specific situation. Maybe, hmm, um, um, for example, an example that she gives is an emotion called chiplessness. And chiplessness is the feeling you get when you, I think, you have removed the last, uh, you've like eaten the last chip and then you reach into the bag and you, <laughs> you find that there's no chip. So yeah, it's called chiplessness now, I guess. And now I've spread that idea to you. And that's an emotion now that you can consider, you know, adding to your catalog. So um, so just like that, it's important for you to also catalog your own emotions and be like, hmm, this is a specific emotion. Let me uh, let me keep learning. And so and so it, you need to start thinking about things in a more granular way like that. And even come up with names for your own emotions and just to be like, oh, this is the feeling I get. And so you can refer to it, you can be like, oh. This is sadness, but it's this, that specific sadness that happens this time. And then you realize, oh, it can be solved like this. And you just go back, go back to being normal. Okay, so um, I have many more books that uh, I could have talked about, but um, our time is up. And uh, wait, uh, our time is up and uh, yeah, I hope you learned something about some of uh, from some of these books, and I appreciate you making time to listen to the pod. I'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye.